0: Welcome to another edition of our six questions podcast I'm Trent England with Save Our States where we defend the Electoral College every single day and I'm really excited to be here with law professor Brad Smith he's a professor at Capital University Law School also a former chairman of the Federal Election Commission you can find him on Twitter at Commission Smith Professor Smith welcome
1: thanks Trent it's nice to nice to talk to you always
0: yeah, yeah, it's great to uh, it's great to have you here. I want to start off with academia because that's that's where you are. You uh, just finished grading your your papers and and things for the semester. Academia is not always an easy place for conservatives. I, I'm curious what advice you have to conservative students, maybe particularly if they want to follow in your own footsteps and become a professor. How do you navigate all of that in uh, you know in this world that we're in today?
1: Well, it's you know it's really tough for conservative students, especially as you say, if they want to become a professor. Uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I do tell students not to be overly afraid. Don't don't be too much living in fear and feeling that you can't say what you believe. But you should pick your battles and make sure that you express yourself articulately and in a way that's not personal and not bitter and and not over the top. Um, you know that I mean that's fairly uh, standard advice uh it can be done you know i would note uh things are much worse in academia though than they were when i came in and and my own school indicates that when i began here you know about a quarter to a third of the faculty were identifiably you know right of center and today it's it's pretty much me uh and uh, the others have you know passed away or or retired so it it is a tough environment uh but you know my my bigger complaint is with tenured professors who aren't willing to speak up you know the students they have things to lose but you know when you when you have tenured professors and they're more worried about oh are they going to you know, be able to publish some future article or something you know or certain things like that that's where i kind of feel like those are the guys that really need to stand up
0: that's i yeah i, I hadn't really thought about that that makes sense i mean you do find uh, when you when you go out you know having having kids in college now myself you do find that there are maybe more conservative faculty than you would suspect, but yet a lot of them keep their, uh, keep their views to themselves, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's kind of understandable, but, but really, you know, if, if, and that's why you have tenure and if, and if you're a, you know, a tenured professor or something and you're unwilling to to kind of stand up and be counted or push back a little yeah. bit. Um, I don't know. I just yeah. don't know what to say to that, you know?
0: Yeah. So obviously, former chairman of the Federal Election Commission, that's mostly about campaign finance, but you have a lot of experience in election policy in general. We're going to talk about campaign finance in a, in a couple of minutes. But election fraud, election processes, this has become obviously a huge topic all across the political spectrum. As we move toward the, uh, the midterm elections this fall, uh, and you know another presidential cycle that will begin in earnest right after that. What do you think are the election policy topics that people should be focused on to make sure that we have faith in our democratic processes?
1: Well, I, I think let, let me first just briefly address the idea of fraud. You know, if, if people have read, for example, Robert Carroll's bio of, of Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, and if you don't, you can look it up, or you can even look it up on, on Wikipedia. You know, I mean, the kind of fraud that first got Lyndon Baines Johnson elected to the Senate is just unheard of in American elections nowadays. In in most respects, our elections really are much cleaner, much less prone to fraud than in the past. At the same time, by the way, I always point out. The idea of voter suppression is something that you know. Yeah, it also occurs, but it's it's something that is is nothing like what it was in the past. So we live in a time when there's when there's really relatively little voter suppression and relatively little fraud, and yet there seems to be more concern about both than ever. Now, having said, there's not you know tons of fraud. There is fraud, and it does occur. Um, up until about five years ago, you could have walked into any academic conference in the United States, and you could have said, you know, the main place we have to worry about voter fraud. Is an absentee balloting, and everybody would have said yes. Of course, we all know that. Why are you bothering to tell us that? There's universal agreement on it. So I think one thing that's unfortunate is that's become a politicized thing, when it when it should not be. Um, and I think for a number of reasons, uh, beyond the fact that there's more fraud in absentee ballots, again, not a lot, but I think some. Uh, Absentee ballots are also more likely to be discarded, not counted, because you know they're done away from the polls. You you know the voter can't get assistance if they make a mistake, ruin their ballot in some way. There's more steps for the voter in terms of properly signing it and sending it back and so on. My general belief is that we really need to get back to the presumption of voting on election day. That we should have absentee balloting. Uh, for people who really can't make it to the polls. I think it should be for excuse, not no excuse ballot. You have to give an excuse, but most any excuse will do. I'm gonna be gone or whatever. I think that we should uh, have maybe a couple days of early voting for people who late in the day realize, oh, I'm gonna have to work that day or something else. and I can't vote. So just a couple days, maybe, you know, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sort of before the election. But I think it's good for our civic life, the idea that we vote. On election day, uh, that everybody votes with the same amount of information, you, know, you wouldn't have a jury trial where, partway through the jury trial, voters could start voting guilty or innocent, and uh, they didn't have to hear the rest of the evidence, but they were they were blocked into that vote. You know, we'd say, no, no, you wait till all the evidence is in. I think that's good. I think it's good for us to go to the polls as a people, and it reminds ourselves of why are we voting. It's a matter of self government, and it's not the worst thing in the world to spend about ten minutes. And, and by the way, that's pretty close to the median and average time that people spend standing in line to vote. It's not a bad thing to spend 10 or 15 minutes standing in line next to our fellow citizens, kind of reminding ourselves that, that we are in this together, that we actually have a lot in common, you know, thinking about how your vote might affect other people. So I think there are a, a lot of reasons why it's just a civic exercise. It's really good to get would, would be really good to get back to that idea that you're expected to vote on Election Day. Voting by absentee ballot is is Abnormal. It's not what you should expect to do. While we should make sure that people can vote uh, if they can't make it on election day, that should be the presumption. You vote on election day.
0: Talking with Professor Brad Smith here on our Six Questions podcast. Question number three: uh, Right to your your primary specialty in campaign finance. We've seen a lot of changes over the last twenty years. The McCain-Feingold law, the Citizens United decision. There are a lot of people today who give to politics uh, in a way that is outside of the political parties, outside of the political campaigns. It's anonymous. Uh, what What do you think needs to happen in this area of campaign finance regulation? Uh, which you know, it's it seems like the you know the the left, so to speak, has gotten some of what they want. The right has gotten some of what they want, but. In reality, it just seems to be pushing more of the uh, of the political spending outside of the the structures, maybe the accountability structures that that used to exist. So I, I'm curious do we need to do we need to go forward by going backward? Is there some is there some better way that we haven't m- maybe tried yet, at least in recent memory? Um, what do you, what do you think, Professor Smith?
1: Yeah, you know, you know, years ago, uh, of all people, the the great uh, liberal justice. Uh, uh, Boimo Douglas uh, said, I don't have the exact quote in my head, but it's basically political activity should not be equivocated with being a crime. You know, that spending money to voice your views is not a bad thing. You might even wonder, what kind of country do we live in? If somebody tries to tell you, you can't spend your own money to express your own political views to a wider group of people. And, you know, it, it costs money to, to speak, whether you want to run a hall to give a speech or buy a newspaper ad or a TV ad or, you know, almost anything. Have a computer so that you can tweet. You know, all these things do do cost money. Um, I think that uh, what what has happened is we've placed restrictions on candidates, and uh, the court, the Supreme Court, has recognized, I think, wisely that you can't limit all spending about politics. At one time, the law actually, and the Supreme Court struck this down in Buckley v. Valeo, attempted to limit any any spending of over one thousand dollars relative to a candidate. What's that mean? I mean, that's virtually all all talk about public affairs, you know, in the United States. So the court said, you can't do that. You have to let people talk about politics, but you can limit what we give to candidates because that may be corrupting. Uh, They talk about quid pro quo corruption. You know, the candidate might say, well, if you contribute to my campaign, I'll vote this way on on your tariff. And that was uh, uh, justified to limit this. The end result is that uh, candidates are limited in their ability to raise money, political parties are limited in their ability to raise money, but other groups, the Sierra Club, the Rifle Association, uh, you know, pro abortion groups, pro-life groups, uh, you know, people all over are, are unlimited in their ability to spend. So nationally more and more of the spending goes to those groups. Now I always laugh when it's called outside spending. I'm kind of like these are these are us these are you know I'll say this is the american people we're entitled to speak out in campaigns and there's no reason that the campaign should be limited to just the things candidates want to talk about on the other hand i think it is true that this gives a little less accountability to a lot of the spending uh, the candidates can't control their own message and the images that are presented to people are are created by folks whom the voters don't necessarily relate to or understand who's doing it. They all to them, all things are kind of campaign ads. So I think that we would do well to go back to basically taking off the limits on candidates. I mean, most of our country, we didn't have limits on candidates. Contributions to candidates uh, were unlimited. Uh, for most of our history and that's how we elected you know truman and eisenhower and fdr and coolidge and uh you know a whole bunch of presidents who you know leaving aside how one might feel about the various ideologies were pretty competent bunch of people. Uh, And Congress seemed to actually get stuff done. You know, they they didn't always agree with what they did, but they passed, you know, some great bills like the Voting Rights Act and some more dubious bills as well, but they passed them. They passed lots of stuff back then. People felt Congress worked. And I think it can, uh, you know, I don't think money is, is going to keep it from working. So I would like to see us move back towards saying look it's people should be able to spend their money to talk about politics to give it to candidates to talk about politics and talk about their campaigns i think that would be healthy for our democracy in the end uh and uh, uh get us out of this constantly battling about you know who's giving to whom i would note one other thing which is uh, you know, you kind of mentioned a lot of these groups spend money and we don't know sort of speak who the ultimate donor is. That's what they to say. Who's the, the real donor. So in other words, if, if you give money to a group, let's say you give money, uh, to, uh, you know, I don't know, you know, Americans for, uh, uh, you know better sport jackets or something right and then they spend money on a candidate people say well we don't know who gave money to americans for better sport jackets which i usually say who who really cares first it's their money you know once you give money to a group it's the group's money they get to spend it you don't so we shouldn't say who's the real spender the real spender is the group spending the money but beyond that um You know, I don't think that we gain much by trying to figure out who's really behind the spending. That leads to ad hominem attacks and so on. And it it also reduces the number of voices in the political spectrum. You know, uh, you can catch a lot of flack for your political speech uh, and you get attacked on Twitter. It can, people can attack your business, boycott your business. And even if you're, you don't care, maybe you're a tough guy. You say, I'm willing to stand up for my views, right? Yeah, but you have to worry about people who, who work for you, who who you might have to lay off, or you have to worry about your family members. I always talk about the classic To Kill a Mockingbird, right? They didn't go after Gregory Pack, because he was a tough guy. He was the best shot yeah. in the county, remember? No, nobody's going to mess with him, with Atticus. They went after his kids, you know? So- there's a lot of reasons why people want to keep their political involvement quiet. There are many other reasons than the ones I've given. And, you know, I think that we should stop being so fixated on who's giving the money and pay more attention to who is, uh, you know, or to what people are saying, what their actual message is, what it is they plan to do. I don't really care that much who gives uh, Joe Biden a bunch of money. I really care about whether Joe Biden has a good plan to be president, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense to me. I mean, it seems like you know the real question is what do these people actually stand for and what are they going to do in office not you know who's donating to what to what super PAC. that seems like it's always it's always going down the road of a cheap shot rather than a substantive argument but i i want to ask you this is question for professor brad smith the left's answer to all of this is oftentimes public funding have taxpayers pay for campaigns why is that not the panacea that the left makes it out to be and and why does the left push that as a solution so, so hard.
1: Well, I, I think it, there's a couple of reasons. One, I think tactically it, it advantages them, right? I mean, the left controls most of the media and most of the other major cultural organs, organs in the United States, right? So the so the right benefits more from paid advertising. You don't get the free advertising the other side gets. And and by the way, conversely, uh, the left doesn't benefit as much from paid advertising because you can, you can flip on the TV or pick up any newspaper and read left-wing messages all the time. So the ads don't have much added value. They have a a lot more added value for conservative groups that are trying to get in into the picture and then i think part of it is, is just that ideology they don't like the private sector they seem to think that somehow government's pure uh, but in the end, these, these government financing systems tend not to work. And I just go back to something the late, great P.J. Rourke used to say, you know, he used to say, why would we want our political speech to be funded, you know, by the government, right? They're the people we're trying to talk about. And and it is ultimately going to come with strings attached and, and ways that I think would be detrimental to our, our political life.
0: Question five here on our six questions podcast for Professor Brad Smith. I got to ask you about the Electoral College. This is something you have spoken eloquently about. Why is it important to preserve the Electoral College?
1: Well, I think that the biggest thing, first first let me set us, clear up something that I hear people say all the time. It's just wrong, including really smart people say it. They say, we're the only major democracy in which you can win the presidency without winning the popular vote. That's just not true. It happens in in all kinds of democracies. Now it happens often in different ways. And I guess we should say that by the presidency, I mean the chief executive officer in the government, which in many governments is in a, with the parliamentary system is a uh, you know prime minister or premier or something like that but it's not only that in these governments oftentimes coalitions are formed after the election in which the second place finisher may head the government but the gov- but the systems themselves often lead to outright majorities by parties that don't win you know legislative majorities and thus the the chief executive officer that don't win the popular vote. This has happened uh, since World War II. It's happened multiple times in India, in Australia, in Canada, in Great Britain, in pretty much every major uh, democracy, and in particular in the democracies, you know, I think of Canada, Australia, India, the United States, that span a continent. And that really tells us one of the main reasons, you know, why would we want a system in which every now and then, it's about one time out of ten, right, the the candidate who didn't win the popular vote nonetheless wins the chief executive officer or the presidency in our country and i think there's a lot of reasons for that but i think the biggest is simply that in a big country like this it matters not just that you have a majority but how you construct that majority and having an electoral college in which you have to win states means you have to win across the country Uh, one of the things you see is that in the electoral college you know Almost every electoral college winner has won a majority of states. There are about three exceptions, and those three won one twenty-five of the states, and two of them won twenty-four states. Right? Um, you can't win the electoral college without winning a lot of the popular vote. You know, nobody wins the electoral college without either winning the popular vote or at least coming very, very close. But so what is the advantage of maybe a close second place finisher can win the the office? It's that they built a coalition that stretches across the country that has to compete in a wide variety of areas. Can't just roll up the votes in California and New York, which is what the Democrats found in 2016. And so I think that uh, the Electoral College is, is, is uniquely uh, appropriate to a large, diverse country like the United States to make sure that we hold together as, as a country and don't become, you know, one geographic faction sort of ruling over another.
0: That sounds good to me. Professor Brad Smith, our sixth question on the podcast is always the same. It is, who is your favorite founding father and why?
1: My my favorite. I haven't thought about a single favorite, but I I guess I would. um, uh, You you can hedge if you want to hedge
0: and say two. I've had people do that before. It's kind of cheating, but.
1: Okay. I, I, I think, let me say this. I'm, first, I, w- I would go, th- you know, you play the hits. I mean, I think Washington was truly the indispensable man. And I, I think Jefferson, for his ability to articulate the ideas of liberty and for the role he played and so on. But I'm going to cheat a bit further because I'll raise one who doesn't get mentioned very much and only in the negative. And, and he probably wouldn't be my favorite, but he's my favorite for this purpose. And that is Elbridge Gerry who is known almost entirely and solely for gerrymandering. And yet Elbridge Gerry was a, a very influential guy who signed the Declaration of Independence. He was at the uh, Constitutional Convention and was a very influential speaker at the Constitutional Convention, although ultimately he didn't sign it. Why didn't he sign it? Because it didn't have a Bill of Rights. Oh, what a terrible mistake he made, you know? No, he was right, it, ne- it needed a Bill of Rights. Moreover, he was he served then in Congress, he served in the Senate, he served as governor of Massachusetts, he was vice president of the United States. The only thing anybody remembers him for is Jerry gerrymandering. But in, in, in Congress, he was vital in creating the Fourth Amendment rights to, against search and seizure, and also in lobbying to include within the First Amendment, the right of, of assembly, uh, the right of the people to come together, and associate. So so to me, he's he's a founding father who who is almost entirely forgotten, or when he's remembered it all, it's solely for this idea of gerrymandering, which was, he was just governor, he just signed the bill. <laughs> so What's I'm going to go with Elbridge Gerry.
0: It's very strange because Eldridge Jerry wasn't a Republican. There wasn't a Republican party yet. And, you know, despite the fact that what I've heard in the media is that only Republicans can gerrymander, that when <laughs> anybody else draws a weird district, it's something other than gerrymandering. And so the whole history of this is just confusing to me. <laughs>
1: You've, you've raised a very good point. It does seem like gerrymandered. <laughs> I mean, that'd be a whole other interview we could do, but it is an <laughs> issue that seems to become a constitutional crisis only when it seemed to work against uh, liberals in recent decades.
0: Yeah, that's, that's certainly, certainly what I've seen in the press uh, professor Brad Smith on Twitter at Kamish Smith and uh, a law professor at Capitol university law school in Ohio And uh, the the founder of a great uh, organization now known as the the Institute for Free Speech, um, formerly um, Center
1: for Competitive Politics, right? Right. And that's at uh, www.ifs, an institute for free speech. Yeah, great organization. organization.
0: So thank you so much, Professor Smith.
1: All right. Thank you, Trent. Good to talk.
0: Thanks to all of you for watching our Six Questions podcast. I'm glad to have you part of our uh, social media family for Save Our States, defending the Electoral College every day, all across the country. We'll be back with another episode next week.